0: 1 Kings chapter 3 today. It's good to be back with you. I'm glad Dustin was able to help out last week. Um, so we're picking up where he left off. Chapter 3 of First Kings. We're just going to dive right in. Let me look at the first few verses here. We're going to look at Solomon's love for the Lord. We see that in the first Four verses. The first two verses serve as an introduction to our passage this morning. Let's go ahead and just read those first two verses. Then Solomon formed a marriage, alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the Lord or for the name of the Lord until those days. As I mentioned, these first two verses here actually serve as an introduction to our passage. And there's two things that we see there. The first is that Solomon had formed an alliance with Egypt. Now, it was common in the ancient Near East to form these alliances, and it was done usually through some form of arranged marriage. And so, as you see with this here, Solomon actually married the Pharaoh's daughter. Now, Egypt was much smaller than what Israel was at this time. Um, less influential than Israel. So what we probably have here isn't so much a peace treaty as it is a trading agreement between Egypt and Israel. Now the one thing we we know from the scriptures is that um, Israel was forbidden from marrying the Canaanites, but they weren't always forbidden from marrying foreigners. And so there's no indication that what Solomon did here would have been sin. But he did marry the Pharaoh's daughter and they formed this trade alliance. That's the first thing we see here. The second is a little more troubling and that's in verse 2 you notice that it says in verse 2 that the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no place built for the name of the Lord until those days now when we see that our first thought is that it probably refers to the pagan high places and probably involved idolatry on Israel's part and part of the reason we might think that is because in almost every instance when you see high places in the Old Testament it's usually a reference to the high places where the Canaanites would go and worship their pagan gods. They would have their altars and their temples and their images and wooden pillars there. And Israel was forbidden to use these high places. In fact, when they came into the land, they were told to tear them down, to burn them with fire. And so it's possible that what we see here, in fact, that would probably be our first reaction to this, that Israel was still doing that at this time. They were worshiping these pagan gods who were involved with idolatry. Part of the problem with that, however, is that most scholars believe and agree that during the reigns of David and Solomon, there wasn't a whole lot of idolatry in Israel. We saw that with Judges, but as we worked our way through 1 and 2 Samuel, and as we will see here in the first 11 chapters or so of 1 Kings, there's not a whole lot of evidence that Israel was involved heavily with idolatry at this time. Now, it's possible they were. But there's also something else as you look at that. Notice it says in the second half of verse 2, it's as if the author gives us an excuse or a reason why Israel was using these high places. It says it was because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And so there's actually a second possibility here as to what this refers to. And it could be that these high places that are referred to here weren't places of idolatry. They weren't actually the Canaanite high places but regional worship centers that Israel had set up to bring their sacrifices into the Lord. Now, that may sound a little awkward or a little odd at times, but prior to the temple being built, there was no central place for Israel to come to. There was a place in Gibeon. We're going to see that in a second here. But it appears that what Israel did was they set up basically altars or other places to worship within Israel where they would bring their sacrifices, and they put those on... High hills or plateaus. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel went up to one of these places. In fact, Samuel had come into town and or Samuel had come into town, he had gone up to the high place, and somebody had come to find him, and they said, Well, he's up at the high place. The people won't celebrate, they won't sacrifice until he's up there to bless the sacrifice. And so Samuel actually goes up there, blesses the sacrifice, and it appears that God is pleased with that. It's referred to as a high place. Again, you can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, we're also going to see here in a minute that there's something referred to as the great high place in verse 4, which was at Gibeon. And Gibeon is the place where the tabernacle was set up and the altar. At one point, all three items, the tabernacle, the um, altar, and the Ark of the Covenant were all brought by Saul to Gibeon, and they put those on a high place, a high plateau. David then ultimately moved the Ark of the Covenant the city of David, but he left those items there. The implication is that even David himself probably worshipped there at that tabernacle and at the altar. And again, it's referred to as the great high place, meaning that it was probably the primary worship place for Israel. Now, if we look at it this way, then the concept of high place here simply means that it was an elevated area. We have to be a little bit careful to automatically assume every time we see the word high place that it's always a place of idolatry. That's not necessarily always the case. Now, is it possible that this was a place of idolatry? It very well could have been because we know that Israel had a huge problem with idolatry. We know that throughout um, the book of Judges, um, almost initially when they first came into that land, what did they start to do? They started to worship Baal. They would have learned to do this probably at the high places, and the reason was, we're told, they didn't tear down the high places. God said, go in and tear them down, but they didn't do that. They left them up, and so they were influenced by it. We also will see in the rest of the book of Kings, as you get past chapter 11, that the high places come up quite frequently, and that's... Again, a reference to Canaanite places. So, it's a little tricky when we come to this verse here as to exactly what the author's talking about. Is he referring to Israel being involved with idolatry? Or is he simply making a generic statement that at this time, before Solomon was able to dedicate the temple, Israel was still offering their sacrifices out at various places among Israel, their own high places. But they were places that were set up to sacrifice to God. They weren't necessarily Canaanite places. That's probably where I lean on this particular passage, partly because there doesn't appear to, again, be be a whole lot of um, issues with idolatry through David's reign and early part of Solomon's reign. In fact, we're told that Solomon himself didn't get involved with idolatry until he was old, which was about 60. It was later in his life. And so that's kind of the tendency or the place that I would go to. And it appears, as we look at that, that God seemed to, I'll say, permit... Or tolerate Israel from doing that. If you go to, you don't have to turn there right now, but Deuteronomy chapter 12, where the Lord um, talks to Israel about what's going to happen when he comes into the land when they come into the land, he says that when you come into the land, I want you to tear down all the high places, and I'm going to build you a place where you can come, and I'll put my name there, and you can bring your sacrifices there. But Moses even says at that in that same passage that when that happens. You won't be able to do what you're doing now, each man, what's right in his own eyes. And that was probably a reference to the fact that Moses was saying, it's not going to be scattered worship. You're not going to be able to worship at that high place, and that high place, and that high place. And he's talking about worshiping God there. But rather, you're going to have to stop doing that and go to a single place where God will have you bring your sacrifices. The problem was, we're almost 480 years since the Exodus. And God hadn't built, or had the temple built yet, and put his name on Jerusalem. So for almost 500 years, Israel didn't have a central place to bring their sacrifices. So, is this a reference to idolatry? Could be. I think the the evidence would weigh more towards, this is just a generic statement, about how Israel, because there was no temple, they were still making their sacrifices out and about, but now that was all going to end, because Solomon was now getting ready to dedicate the temple. And they would not be permit they wouldn't be permitted to do that anymore. Even if it was a temple dedicated to God, and even if it didn't involve idolatry, they were now going to have to come to a central place, the temple, to make their sacrifices. So, that's the first two verses, and that then actually takes us to the heart of our first few verses here. The meat, if you want to refer to it that way. And that's verse 3, which is this. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. As a young man, Solomon became king. He was about 20 years old or so. And we're told that he loved the Lord and he demonstrated it ultimately by following in the footsteps of David. If you remember from last week, once you flip back to 1 Kings chapter 2, David's challenge to Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 2, Verses 3 and 4, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise, which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful to walk before me in truth, with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so the author kind of comes out of the gate here, it tells us that Solomon loved the Lord and then he walked in all the ways of David. But then we have this matter of him sacrificing at the high places, burning incense. So what do we do with that? How do we balance Solomon loved the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, except what do we do with that? Well, it's another challenging Passage here, another challenging verse in 3. There are three different scenarios that I think this might refer to. The first one, verse 3 there, second half, that he burned incense, made sacrifice in the high places. The worst case scenario is that Solomon at this point was an idolater. Seems unlikely because the statement regarding his love for the Lord there and walking in all the ways of his father. Um, Plus we're told in chapter 11 that it wasn't until Solomon had become old that he began to be an idolater. So it's unlikely that this is a reference to idolatry. Another ca- another scenario would be a better case, I guess we want to call it that, is that it means that Solomon obeyed all the commandments, except the one about using the pagan high places to worship God. Now one of the things that God prohibited was not just destroying these places, but reusing them, recycling them. In other words... I've talked about this before where you couldn't just come into a high place and say well yeah this has Baal on the altar but we'll just cover that up with the name Yahweh why destroy a perfectly good temple if we did that we'd have to rebuild one for God so let's just go ahead and recycle what takes place here it would be much like if we went into a mosque and said ah you know what yeah let's just take this over we'll put God's name on it God did not permit that told him destroy it Don't just remove the name of Baal. Don't just walk in there and start worshiping him. Literally scrape that plateau clean. I don't want you reusing any of that stuff. Why? Because it will influence you. Think about that when it comes to the American church here. How there are things that we do sometimes, and I'm not specifically referring to us here, but some things we do as a Christian church sometimes where we adopt the means and the processes and things of the world and the church becomes much like the world. And we think that's okay, but that doesn't honor God to do that. Now, some things are okay. We have just, you know, even if you look into the book of Acts, there are certain things that they just did because it was part of the culture, and so we meet in a building. Is it wrong to meet in a building? No, it's where we have meetings. Business meetings, family gatherings. Okay, so we have a meeting place, even for the church. You know, we happen to use music in the church here. There are some who think, no, we can't use instruments, only a cappella, you know. Is it wrong that we happen to use a form of contemporary music? You know what, even the organ and hymns at one point (laughs) were considered contemporary. We borrowed those, if you will. So some things are okay, but some things are not. And so the second scenario here is that what Solomon may have been doing was kind of using these pagan high places, but worshiping God. Because, again, we're told he didn't become an idolater until later in his life. That would be a possibility here, too, that he did everything he should have done. He followed in the footsteps of David, but he went up to those pagan high places, just put God's name on it, and tried to worship God there. And maybe he even used some of the practices that they used. That's a, that's a possibility here, too. But, again, I, I struggle with that personally because of, Again, what we're told about Solomon. There's nothing in Solomon's life up until this point that would suggest that he was sinning. And it's not that we don't sin. We kind of do. But everything up until this point, in fact, the first ten chapters of 1 Kings paints Solomon in a very glowing picture, but then slams the brakes on that in, in chapter 11, but makes it very clear but it was his foreign wives at the end of his life that caused him to forsake God and to start worshiping idols. Um, I would find it a little challenging here if maybe Solomon was kind of half and half at this point. Plus, the author here doesn't seem to indicate there's a problem with what, what happens here. A third scenario, and it's the one that I favor on this, is that this is sort of a generic, general summary of Solomon's life with a forward-looking piece. Remember, the author wrote this about 70 years probably after um, they had already been in captivity. He probably wrote it for the captives who were going back to Jerusalem. So he wasn't alive at this time in Solomon's life, but he saw the whole story. He saw how Solomon's life ended up. And so it's possible that what this statement references is that Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon walked in all the ways of his father. But the author then sort of has a foreshadowing statement. But there was one area. He worshipped the high places. He became an idolater. So instead of it being a statement regarding this very specific moment in time that Solomon somehow had a problem with the high places, that instead it's a forward-looking statement that this is where it kind of ends up. A last possible idea is that it simply refers to what we find in verse 4, where he went up to Gebeah, which is called a high place, it was a high place where the temple had, or where the tabernacle had been set up. It's a um, place where the ark or the altar was still there, and so Israel—that was sort of the central place, if you would call it that. It was small; it was, the tabernacle wasn't huge. It was built during the times of their travels in the wilderness. This was some 500 years later; they had grown substantially, but it was still considered to be the great high place, if you will, for Israel. So again, we're left. Maybe not with something super concrete on this, but I think it's most likely a reference to the fact that it's sort of a general statement that Solomon truly did love the Lord and he did obey at this point in his life. In fact, for most of his life, he walked as his father David walked. And it wasn't until the end when the high places and burning the incense there and making sacrifices there became an issue because we're told that in chapter 11 that he began to do that. But again, very late in his life. What triggered that? Don't know. Maybe we'll find out as we keep studying through the letter or the book here. So, what do we find? Verse 4. It says, The king went to Gibeah to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. about a thousand burnt offerings on the altar? So, what does Solomon do here? The text tells us that he went to Gebea, which is where the tabernacle was, it's a celebration. It was a huge event and involved commanders, judges, leaders of Israel, heads of households. In fact, once you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, we get a better picture of what this looked like. It's kind of interesting how the author of 1 Kings gives us essentially one verse on it. But the author of 2 Chronicles gives us more details. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Is that right? 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Now Solomon, the son of David... "...established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and of judges, and to every leader in all of Israel, the heads of all the fathers' households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses the servant of the Lord had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of God from kirith Jerem to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar which Bezebel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly brought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was there at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. <coughs> so he went up to the tabernacle to have a celebration, to make sacrifices. There's a thousand of them. What we're going to find out a little bit later when he does the dedication is that there are musicians there and 120 priests that blow trumpets. This was a huge celebration. And so Solomon goes up there and he worships. So what we see in these first four or five verses here is Solomon's love for the Lord. That's the way he's described. He loved the Lord. He walked like David walked. We get a picture of where he ultimately is going to end up. Maybe some foreshadowing there. But as he prepares the the, uh, temple here, as he's getting ready, he goes and he basically makes his um, makes a celebration there. He's now the king. He'll ultimately come back a little bit later and he'll bring all these items up to the temple and he'll dedicate the temple and it's going to be a pretty, pretty big deal. So, where do we go from there? Well, we saw in verse 5, we'll look at the next few verses here. That the Lord is pleased with what he's done. This is another reason why I think that this reference to him burning incense is probably something later in life. Because the Lord is pleased with what he does here at Gibeon. That night in Gibeon, we're told that the Lord appeared to him. Look at verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according to... As he has walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given to him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to come in or go out. Your servant is in the midst of your people and you have chosen a great, or which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil for, you, for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Hold on a second. I want to make sure I know how I'm doing here. So what do we find here? The Lord is obviously pleased with Solomon. So he appears to him in a dream and he tells him, ask whatever you want. And He waits. Solomon's response is often praised for its humility. But it's also dripping with spiritual and theological understanding. I want to cover some of this. I want you to see the things that Solomon actually covers or mentions here. I'm going to give you a handful of words here. The first one is faithfulness. Verse 6, if you look at Solomon what he does here, Solomon says, You've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according to or according to as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart the first thing that solomon mentions here is the lord's faithfulness he refers to david's or the lord's loving kindness you remember i'd like to refer to that as covenant loyalty it's god's faithfulness to his covenant and, and certainly Solomon as he is reflecting on what God has offered him here he thinks about the faithfulness of God he mentions it twice really he mentions it in relationship to David and his relationship to the Lord he says that David walked in truth and righteousness and upright and heart, uprightness and heart towards the Lord and because of that the Lord was faithful to him but he also mentions the Lord's faithfulness to himself because he's now sitting on the throne it's a promise that God had made to David, specifically related to Solomon, and so Solomon reflects on the Lord's faithfulness here. So as he's asked, or as he's told, ask what you want. The first thing out of Solomon's mouth is to reflect and to praise God for his faithfulness. Notice, too, the word servant, or servanthood. You notice how many times he mentions that in these few verses we just read? In verse 6 he mentions it. Verse 7 8, 9, so in verse 6 he mentions David as a servant, but then he refers to himself three times, verses 7, 8, and 9, as being a servant. It's clear from everything that he says in here that he understood that he was a servant of the Lord as king. Contrast that with his son Adonijah. <laughs> or, why well, not his son, his, <coughs> excuse me, his brother Adonijah. How about his brother Absalom, who tried to usurp the throne from David. Those men were in it for themselves. Solomon sees it as the opposite here. He sees himself as a servant, just like he saw his father David. How about humility? Verse 7. Solomon is thought to have been around 20 years or so when he became king. Unlike David, David had at least 10 years of military experience working alongside Saul before he became king. Think about that for a moment. David was a military man. Had a lot of experience there, but he worked alongside Saul for ten years. Saw the inner workings of the kingdom. Saw how a king operates and what the duties of the king would be. But when it comes to Solomon, his dad was king, but we don't get any indication that he was in the military. In fact, he was 20 when he became king. David was 30 when he became king. David was older than Solomon was. In fact, that's reflected here. Notice that he refers to himself in verse 7 there I am a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. That was probably a military reference, going out for battle and coming back. So we have this humility with Solomon. I'm just a a little guy. I'm young. I don't know how to come in or go out. I don't know how to be king. You get a sense here that he didn't quite feel up to the task without the Lord's help. I don't know what to do with verse 8. I called it proprietorship. Proprietorship a proprietor is a legal owner of a business or an entity. Oftentimes, a nation's people are referred to as the king's subjects. But you notice here, Solomon doesn't do that. He doesn't refer to Israel as his people or his subjects. Instead, he says, your people which you have chosen. And again, a little bit later in verse 9, he says, your people. Solomon understood that these were God's people. Not his people. What we're going to see, well, we won't see it so much because we're going to stop at verse 11. I mean, chapter 11. As you go through the rest of the book of Kings, it is all kings in it for themselves, their people. They're not servants of God. They're in it for their own purposes and means. But Solomon here, there's a sense of proprietorship, not his own, but the Lord's. He recognizes these are the Lord's people, purchased by the Lord. And again, that goes back to the humility to some respects and the servanthood. I'm going to put the last two together here. I'm going to use the word discernment and obedience. That's verse 9. This is where we finally get to Solomon's request. Now, I don't want you to go back and look at it yet. we going to give you a quiz. Without looking back at verse 9, what did Solomon ask for? What did he ask for? There's a common answer, typically. Anybody want to take a stab at it? You know, you say it and you're wrong. You're like, oh, no, I'm wrong. No. What's that? Yeah, it is to some degree, the Sermon of Good and Evil. The general answer is, yes, for wisdom. Solomon was a wise, wise man. I want you to go back to verse 9, though. It's tied into that, though, Nate. Verse 9. Look at what it says. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now most translations translate it that way, an understanding heart or a discerning mind. The Hebrew phrase is more, li- more literally a listening heart, or you could possibly translate it as an obedient heart. I see Matt kind of smiling a little bit there because we've talked about this. Matt's much better at Hebrew than I am. That was his, that's what his degree was in. I only suffered for three years. I think he probably suffered more than that. One of the things that's really interesting about the the words for the words for obey and for listening is they come from the same word. Hebrew word is a shema, as I pronounce it, shema or shema. So, in some respects, to listen is to obey. In fact. Exodus 19.5, it says this. Now then, if you will indeed listen or hear, your translations probably translate that as obey. Because that's the intent. Now then, if you will indeed obey, listen to my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the people of all the earth. The idea there is that when somebody says listen, they mean what? Obey. Obey. And so the word is tied very closely, the two words are tied very closely together. You might even say, if you're not obeying, you're not listening. And so when Solomon here says, give me a listening heart, I don't think he's praying for wisdom. I think he's asking the Lord for a, an inner propensity, an inner desire to obey him. In other words, what Solomon's asking is, if I could paraphrase this, Lord, help me to obey. Give me a heart, a mind, if you will. Give me the inner disposition to obey you. And that's followed up with, so that I can discern between good and evil. There's a a pattern there, if you will. And so what Solomon is asking for here is this help in obeying the Lord's commands. I find that striking, considering that what David has just explained to Solomon is, he needs to do that. He needs, if, if God is going to honor him as king, if he's going to prosper in everything that he does, he has to obey. And you can imagine how a 20-year-old man coming to be king now, especially understanding that you're king because God has made you king and the burden that now puts upon your shoulders that I have to lead this great nation of the Lord's. in fact he even says it here if you go back to verse 9 he says who is able to judge this great people of yours now that word judge is important there because one of the primary roles of a king was to serve as the primary judge between what is right and what is wrong he's supposed to be an example of what's in the law And this burden has now fallen upon Solomon's shoulders. His dad has told him, your number one job is to, we talked about the, the charge last week, the charge given to Solomon wasn't so much being king, it was to obey the Lord and to reflect the Lord. That was Solomon's responsibility. And so here what we have him say is, Lord, I want a heart that is bent on obedience towards you. Change me inside. He didn't just ask for wisdom. Make me smart, dude. He basically said, Lord, give me the kind of heart, the disposition that wants to obey you so that I can rightly judge this people and I can discern between good and evil. I think that's fairly significant. In fact, the Lord is very pleased with that response. In fact, look at our next section here. As we might expect, the Lord is thrilled with Solomon's request. He not only granted it to him, but he granted him even more than he asked for. Look at verses 10 through 13. Now, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. That's the end result of that heart behold I have done according to your word behold I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you no one shall be like you or rise after you I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor so that there will be or there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days so the Lord is pleased not only gives him what he asked for so pleased he went above and beyond Says. So he's Gave him a wise and discerning heart that would be unmatched by anyone who would live, had lived before him or would live after him. But he also says that he gave him riches and honor. Um, you, can, you don't need to do it right now, but 2 Chronicles chapter 9 talks about the wealth of Solomon. And we'll actually get into some of that in the few weeks here. But trying to figure out how much... Solomon was worth is a difficult task. Nobody necessarily agrees on it. Um, I looked at just a couple of things. Every year Solomon received tribute from the nations around him but also had within Israel 12 different divisions. Remember he divided Israel up into 12 different areas. And each one of those areas was responsible for one month to provide everything that Solomon's government needed. Right? Just the amount of gold that Solomon collected every year was 22 tons that amounts to about a billion dollars by today's prices that's every year and that doesn't include everything that's just the gold estimates of estimates of his worth if you sort of do the math and some other there's some speculation involved you start doing the math estimates range as high as Solomon's wealth as a kingdom and we're talking kingdom wealth here not just his personal wealth but as a as the king Probably close to two and a half or two point two trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. And so the Lord did some pretty amazing things for Solomon. There's one more thing that the Lord promises Solomon here. It comes with a bit of a caveat. Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Notice what it says there. That if Solomon would walk in the Lord's ways, if he would remain faithful to the Lord, if he would keep his statutes and his commandments, then he would prolong his days. It's a reference to both his length of life as well as his reign, because he would be king until he would die. At first it appears that that promise came to fruition because Solomon's reign lasted for 40 years. It's a pretty long reign. But what you don't see here is that Solomon actually died at the age of 60. He was 10 years younger than his father. Now, by some standards that would be considered old age. I'm going to make some speculation here. Had Solomon not forsaken the Lord by the time we get to chapter 11, God might have given him another 10 years. Maybe another 20 years. Because the Lord tells him here, if you walk in my ways, I'll prolong your years. And while it may seem like he had a lot of years at 40, again, he died fairly young compared to his father. And so it's likely that the Lord did not prolong Solomon's years because he had forsaken him, chose not to walk in his ways. And so we have a picture here of couple of things one of them is the way that Solomon looked at what God had offered and the theology that we find dripping in there with being a servant and other things but also at this particular point in Solomon's life it sounds like he genuinely loved the Lord and his heart was tender and what he wanted from the Lord was this give me help give me an inner disposition give me a heart that wants to listen and obey you so that I can rightly judge these people and know the difference between good and bad and the Lord was pleased by that, and as a result of that, gave Solomon wisdom, gave him the ability to judge wisely, gave him riches in the kingdom. But the one area where Solomon seemed to fall short was in the long haul. <laughs> the last promise that the Lord offered was to prolong his life. And it seems Solomon, at least as we get into chapter 11, we will see somewhat forfeited that. Again, a bit of foreshadowing. The last thing we're going to look at here is verses 16 through 28. I'm not going to read through those just for the sake of time this morning. You're all familiar with the story. But it's where Solomon basically demonstrates his wisdom. It's his service on behalf of the Lord. It's where we begin to see him exercise what God had given to him. And it's where he serves as judge. And if you go back, you have to turn there again, but if you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 16... The Lord commanded Israel to set up judges in all the towns. And these judges were much like our judges today, where we would go to them to settle civil disputes and other things. And so Israel would set up these judges in every town. However, when it came to Jerusalem, the primary judge, the one people would go to, was the king. We saw this with David. David would set out in the gates, and people would come to David, and David would rule on their civil cases. And that's exactly what we see here with Solomon. He would spend part of his time serving as judge and hearing civil cases. And so you kind of remember the story, and I'll summarize it for us here. Solomon is his first real his first real act of wisdom here, if you will. These two um, women come in to see him. We'll leave it at that. Women of the night, we'll call them. They came in. One of them, or I'm sorry, both of them had a newborn son. One woman claims that during the night, the other woman rolled over and smothered her child. And so she gets up in the middle of the night, she takes her dead child, she goes over to the other woman and she takes her live child, puts her dead child there, and then takes the live child back with her and nobody sees it. It's the dark of night. So the other woman in the morning wakes up, finds her child dead, but it doesn't look like her child, so she knows there was something nefarious that happened. So these two women now come and stand before Solomon. There's no witnesses. It's one woman's word against the other woman's word. And the one woman lays out the story of what happened. The other woman completely denies it. No, 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 no. The son is mine. She killed her son. And it's a a back and forth. This story, this historical fact or event is often used even in secular circles when talking about wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon Because what he does to solve it is brilliant. Because in some respects, he lets them solve it by making a suggestion. Which is okay. Since we have no witnesses, I don't know which one of you is telling the truth necessarily, if I paraphrase him. So tell you what, get me a sword. We'll cut the child in half and you each get half. And the real mother isn't going to let that happen to her child would much, la- much rather her child live than be raised by the other woman. What does that demonstrate? The other woman says, no, go ahead and cut him in half. Brilliant move by Solomon. His wisdom. Because there was no other way to really figure this out. He could have just said, I think you're lying, I think you're telling the truth. But how does he know that? So he exercises this amazing wisdom, if you will, to discern between good and evil. I believe that at the heart of what Solomon wanted here was he wanted a righteous decision. And he knew that the rightful mother, the true mom, would ultimately stand up, make the right decision, and that the other one would not. So we see one aspect of his wisdom played out here. You can read through the details if you want there. I'll let you do that for the sake of time. Now sometimes as we go through this, I'll try to give you some takeaways as we go through individual parts, but I decided to wait until the end, and I've got two primary takeaways for us today. And it focuses mostly on Solomon's request. When the Lord told Solomon to ask for whatever he wished, rather than asking for earthly things, he asked for a heart that would listen, an obedient heart. I could paraphrase that as, Lord, give me the disposition and desire to obey you. How often do we ask for something like that? If God would appear to you tonight in a dream just like he did Solomon and said, ask me whatever you wish and I'll do it for you. What would be at the top of your short list? I can think of all kinds of things. My my favorite way to do my devotions is I set my alarm in the morning and when it goes off I set it to a five-minute snooze. I love to roll over on my stomach and that's my prayer time. That's what I pray. i got a long list of things I pray for. A lot of them related to the church here. A lot of them are related to myself. A lot of them are related to my family, and I'll spend anywhere from twenty to thirty minutes, maybe doing that. If all we do is ask for earthly things, and we're we're supposed to, right? We're supposed to lay out our heart for the Lord. You know, we're supposed to pray to see people healed and pray for things that are going on in our families, in our churches, in our nation. We're told to pray for our national leaders. Are we not? Those are all good things. But if that's all we pray for, what does that say about us? When we petition the Lord for the things that we need, don't we think that maybe the thing that we need above all else, before all earthly things, is a disposition to obey Him? It is not easy, folks. Is it? We all struggle. And you read about Paul's struggle in Romans where he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do, and he refers to himself as a wretched man. It's hard sometimes to obey. My daughters, especially Kimberly, we would talk about why we sin. And my answer to her was always, because we like to, because we want to. It is really easy to do the things we want to do, right? Because what's in the heart is what drives us to do things. And so when we obey, it's because our heart is inclined to obey and we want to obey. When we disobey, it's because what's in that heart is a little more trashy and it causes us to want to disobey. And sometimes, you know, my pastor uh, used to call that the uh, sin beast within. That little thing likes to rise up and when that sin beast rises up within us, that now wants to control us. What do we do? We act in accordance to it. That's why even Paul, as he prayed for some of his readers, prayed that they might... Learn obedience. And so I think about Solomon here, about my own life, and think, man, you know, maybe I don't pray enough that I'll have that kind of heart. Maybe that ought to be the first thing that I pray about, is give me a heart that wants to obey you, Lord. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easier, or easy, but I realize that if he can change my heart, then maybe I won't struggle quite as much with sin. I think that's what Solomon asked for here. And so that ought to be at the top of our short list. Not, you know, oh, by the way, Lord, help me. And you know what's interesting about that? For me, I have even thought about that. It's not so much, you know, Lord, help me not to do this or help me not to do that. Maybe you've got a particular area of your life that you struggle with. And so you, Lord, help me with this particular area. And this goes beyond that. This goes to, no, give me a heart that it just wants to obey no matter what it is. And so I think our first takeaway is that ought to be at the top of our short list much like it was Solomon. And the Lord, as he looked at him, says, gee, you could have asked for your enemies' lives, you could have asked for, you know, wealth, you could have asked for all these things that most kings would want. But what you chose, the top of your short list, was a heart to obey. The second takeaway is related to that. And it's because there's a principle behind that. The Lord was pleased with Solomon's request because the thing that honors him the most is what? Our love and obedience—that's the bottom line, folks. You want to—you want to honor the Lord. You want to love the Lord. What? What do we do? How do we do that? It isn't just with our words. It isn't just saying. It's with our obedience. That's what David told Solomon. That's the charge he handed him. There's a passage. just go ahead and turn there. Um, Deuteronomy chapter thirty. That it, it's just. It's one that sticks in my mind. There are certain passages that stick in our mind at times. If you remember, the Lord out in the wilderness gives the law to Israel. There's six hundred and some odd commandments. And can you imagine as Moses is reading these commandments to Israel? Don't do this, do this, two turtle doves, one heifer do this with your slave, don't do that with your slave, and if your slave does this, do this, if your slave does that, do this, and if this person hits you, do this. this is, I mean, they're, maybe they're taking notes, writing them down in their big stone table, I don't know, but you know, the re- you know what that would be like. It'd be overwhelming to be handed a list of 600 and plus laws and things that you now are expected to obey. But what I love about this passage is that when that gets all done, when the Lord is done with that, he has something rather interesting to say to Israel. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm just going to read this, starting down in verse 11. And this is what gets my attention. After all of that, the Lord says this, For this commandment, in other words, all that I've just given you, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is that out of reach. Had I been standing there, I would have thought, what? What? 600 laws, and you're telling me it's not too difficult? It's not out of reach? Look what the Lord goes on to say. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it, to make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us, to get it for us, and make us hear, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your heart that you may observe it. You see, it wouldn't be difficult if that's what was on their heart. Now he goes on. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessings and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live and that your descend, or you and your descendants, notice he says it again, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So when the Lord says, it's not too difficult He isn't just saying, muscle up the strength, it's easy. He's saying it isn't too difficult when you love the Lord and this is written on your heart. Because the heart controls everything. And so as I think about this kind of stuff, we ask the Lord to give us the kind of heart that desires to obey him. But it starts with our love for him. If we love him will obey. In fact, Jesus himself said that. What was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Why is that the number one commandment? Because that covers everything else. Love covers a multitude of sins, we're told. In fact, John says in 1 John 5, this is love for God, that we obey his commandments. So love and obedience go hand in hand. But it all starts with what's in the heart. And when the Lord tells him here, these things, if they're in your heart... If you take them to heart, then it won't be as hard. If they focused on the 600 and some odd commands, now they've got a problem. But he says, this won't be difficult if you focus on love and obedience and the heart. That's the key to all of this. Again, it doesn't mean it's easy. And I don't think Solomon here is saying, you know, Lord, give me the heart that, you know, make my heart obey. Force me to obey. That, we talked about that a little bit this week, kind of in some text it's not what Solomon is asking for he's saying Lord put it into my heart to obey but the problem is that we have to be willing to listen and obey that's how we discern between good and evil not just in our thoughts not just in our words but in our behavior one last thing and I'll close with this and it kind of drives this point home I was struck as I was studying through some of this I noticed that we have at the very beginning here, this is really the beginning of Solomon's reign. This is where he becomes king. And verse 3 says, now Solomon loved the Lord. And everything else we see in the book up to, verse, up to chapter 11 demonstrates that, that he loved the Lord. Until we get into chapter 11, and I'll just highlight this real quickly here, starts this way. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the Pharaoh. And then goes on to describe that because he loved these foreign women, these Canaanite women, that his heart was changed. And he therefore became an idolater. Isn't it interesting that Solomon's life is bookmarked with, he loved the Lord, he had the right kind of heart, he asked for that kind of heart, he obeyed the Lord, until he began to love something else. Then his heart changed and he became an idolater. Love on both ends. The only difference was what he loved. Amen?